Hey, this is Jazz United, a podcast from WBGO Studios. My name is Nate Chenen, the editorial director at WBGO. And this is Greg Bryant, host of Jazz After Hours on WBGO. This is a podcast about jazz in all of its forms, the culture, the commentary, most of all the music. And Greg and I, you know, we're always talking about what we might want to sink our teeth into. And mm-hmm. I, I can't recall a topic that enticed and excited us more than this one right here. <laughs> we've been scaling the walls for like six months, and today we finally get to bring it to you. What is it? The complete Live at the Lighthouse sessions of Lee Morgan, 1970. This is a comprehensive look into uh, working nights into the life of one of our greatest improvisers. How much music is this, Greg? <laughs> this is 12 sets, Woo! 12 sets of material. <laughs> Three days, man. Four sets a night. (laughs) Talk about cracking the whip, man. (laughs) Oh, my God. And not only is it a lot, not only is there quantity, um, Mm -hmm. but there's some pretty exceptional quality right here. Um, So much so that that I dare say that you could call this a revelatory drop. Um, Mm -hmm. We we knew, but we didn't know. Um, (laughs) That's right. And, and so we are excited to have this conversation today because uh, the two of us have been living with this music for a while. Um, Greg, I think you might have gone a little deeper than than I have uh, in the listening booth with this. But, you know, every time I've dipped in, mm-hmm. it's been completely like knock you out of your seat experience, you know? it. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's been crazy. It's been really crazy because when you think about Lee Morgan... You know, you want to place him in the hard bop pantheon mostly, but what folks don't know and that they'll hear with this comprehensive picture of such a band like this, um, there's modal, there's even a toe dip into the avant-garde, there's odd meters. It's like the complete picture mm. of what quote unquote modern improvisational music means for me anyhow. Well, we're, we're going to, we're going to get to that. I think we're going right. to, we're going to get all up in that but before we do why don't we hear a taste of music to kind of set the stage and and align our our chakras (laughs) with this music uh what what track do you think we should uh we should invoke with man you know what it's been uh kind of a crazy weekend for both of us uh how about peyote this is a benny maupin tune yeah Check this out. All right. This is a tune that that appeared in a previous iteration of mm-hmm. of this. Uh, well, I don't know. It, it wasn't a really a box set initially it was a it was an lp release right um and uh do you do you have the lps greg is that in your library man you know i i did i had the original pressing a radio copy actually which was ultra pristine that i had to let go unfortunately in an earlier life but it made me so curious that when in 1996 i was a senior in high school I went to Tower Records one day 
and I had to have it right away. I think I spent all of my allowance and whatever I had worked for that week just to bring home that set. And mm-hmm. this is a tune, Peyote, that was not, as you mentioned, on the original vinyl. And it was a revelation to me. Yeah. Well, so I am holding in my hand uh, the the three CD set that I bought from the Princeton Record Exchange. Uh, it's a nice. used copy because by the time I bought it, it was already out of print. Man. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yes, Peyote is on is on this box. And, you know, it's interesting, the market considerations uh, that determine some of these decisions, right? Because um, the original double LP set it was, you know, in line with what had been happening. Um, you know, Miles Davis had released some double LP mm-hmm. live sets right. uh, on Columbia. Right. You know, th- th- there was a there was a kind of precedent for for that. But really, like two LPs was kind of the the ceiling. Right. Mm-hmm. And then as we get into the 90s and the CD reissue uh, era, the, the sort of you know, compact box sets are, are a thing. And so the three CD set made a lot of sense at that point. And I, I think, I don't think anyone seriously considered at that time, you know, taking the entirety of the run and releasing it. Although, Greg, as I, I know you know very well, Miles again provides us with a precedent because the complete uh, plug nickel box dropped in the in the mid 90s and that was a I, let's see a 10 cd set was it i think you're 10, right 10 it, discs? yeah i think you're right uh, not having it in front of me um that's that's just about right but the weird thing is if they didn't want us to be curious nate in that original lee morgan lighthouse three disc uh collection mm-hmm. they should not have printed out the full every night's set list right because right then right away i'm like there's more music yeah we have to hear more music yeah and and i know there are differing opinions on what's originally released and what comes out later but i knew i was holding out hope and shout out to zeb feldman for making this happen man because um i never thought this this would be available Mm -hmm. quite honestly yeah and uh you know, there were a, a number of people who who helped out with both releases. You know, and and one of the one of the the really key figures in you know the the shepherding of this music um, is the trumpeter David Weiss, who was involved in that mm-hmm. original CD uh, production. And in the liner notes for this package, he talks a bit about how you know he got to listen to the entirety of the of the um, run and Mm -hmm. then make those selections for, for the CD set. But, you know, he says in his notes that it never would have occurred to him that anyone would allow the release of the entire thing. And we find ourselves in a different moment now where, you know, the jazz industry in some ways has constricted, but in other ways has expanded, right? Because um, there are people who just, are fanatics about, you know, the, the sort of um, the rare find or the, the you know, the vault gem. You know, we've seen so many of those just this year and, and you and I have talked about some. Um, and so I, I feel like in this current climate, why would you not just drop the entire thing? You know, that's it's kind of what the people want. True, true. Um, again, bringing back the plug nickel situation, the entirety of, of 
the output of of Miles's plug nickel stay at a crucial time really got additional fans to that band um, because of the spontaneity that was uh, that band. You mm-hmm. know, in, in this case with Lee Morgan, um, hearing him in a working ensemble is one very rare because. I don't know how much our listeners know about Blue Note studio dates of the 1960s, but most of those projects were of ad hoc bands. Those were not actually working, touring, performing ensembles. But in this case, this is what you have. And Lee kept this unit together for the better part of of, of two years. So hearing them stretch out on material, some of these songs have uh, three three versions of them. Mm -hmm. Um, No one version is alike. And you hear the band falling into comfort, not just on the job, but with the additional knowledge of there's tape rolling on this job. So we really have to bring this music uh, to the people rightly. Right. You know, um, before we move on from the plug nickel analogy, uh, dig this. I was talking to Herbie Hancock. um, Sorry for the name drop. This was this was very recent in a conversation I had with with Herbie and Chris Bowers for uh, International Jazz Day. Okay, and, and so Chris Bowers and I were both talking about the plug nickel sessions and and what a mind blowing thing that was. And Herbie said, "You know what? I had no idea." Uh, he said, "You know, they they put out that um, that you know single album, you know, which I think also was a two LP, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was." And so that's that's the context he had for that gig, um, and he said that uh, a musician friend of his was talking about it, you know, shortly after the box came out, and mm-hmm. and he was like, oh yeah, I remember that gig, yeah, it was all right, and the guy was like, Herbie, you need to listen, <laughs> you need to listen to yeah. this box, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. and so Herbie went back, Herbie mm-hmm. got the got the box and and spent time with it, and he realized, whoa, mm-hmm. okay. Like th- we were really doing some stuff, you know, and and so it's yeah. interesting that you know unexpurgated, uh, just roll tape and, and let it fly. Like it, it allows for revelation, even for you know a musician looking back on the experience. Mm-hmm. What this provides us, you know, the window this provides us on Lee Morgan. Um, mm-hmm. This was, crazy enough, the only live album that Lee Morgan made under his own name mm-hmm. during his entire career, True. which is which is really like I mean I had to read that sentence several times before I believed it, you know, because right. we have so much, you know, Lee with the Jazz Messengers and and you know Night of the Cookers, like we've got a lot of live Lee Morgan. But mm-hmm. to think that this is the only document of of him on the bandstand as a band leader, uh, right. it's really something. True, true. And there are a lot of reasons of why that may or may not have been. Um, uh, shout out to um, the fine folks that produced, uh, in my opinion, the finest documentary on uh, music in this era. I called him Morgan. Lee suffered from, uh, heretofore, I'll say it this way, unreliability. Um, It is well known his struggles with substance. And unfortunately, in the middle 1960s, at his greatest peak that he sustained through the rest of his career, middle 60s, he sometimes wouldn't show up for a gig. Mm -hmm. Lee Morgan's name may be advertised, but you may not see him. 
Um, but thanks to Helen Morgan, his companion, um, she helped to resurrect him to not only steady work, but um, he became to, to be even more of, of, of a commodity, being able to capitalize on earlier successes like the Sidewinder in live appearances. So again, he's booked out you know several months in advance now. We can plan for something like a live recording, which I'm sure that, that Francis Wolfe was, was thinking about, oh man, Lee's not only going to be on the job, but he's going to be on and he's got a killer working band at this time. Yeah. Um, we should note at this moment who is in that band. Mm-hmm. So obviously Lee Morgan on trumpet and flugelhorn. And we've mentioned Benny Maupin, who played tenor saxophone, bass clarinet and flute in the band. And we're going to talk a little more about Mr. Maupin in a second. We I have, think. To. We have um, to. Harold Mayburn on piano, Jamie Merritt on bass and Mickey Roker mm-hmm. on drums. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, the Jamie Merritt, Mickey Roker hookup is a, you know, like Lee Morgan, that's a Philly hookup. Um, yeah. And with Mayburn, you've got, you've got the South, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then Maupin is bringing his other thing. Maupin, Maupin, I think is from, uh, from Neptune or something. He's, he's coming from Detroit. another, another space time dimension <laughs> by, here. By way of Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> by way yeah. of Detroit. Yeah, um, man. So it's a very, it's, it's a, uh, it's a down home, but like, extremely um like uh cosmic band at the same time mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um and uh you mentioned you know how much you hear lee morgan's leadership here um mm-hmm. you hear like not only the um you know that the horn out front kind of like i'm i'm like you know the bull leading the charge but y- you hear how generous he is as a yeah. band leader um, yeah, you really hear how much space he gives everyone, um, and how mm-hmm. much he trusts this ensemble to mm-hmm. to to land the plane. You know, true, um, true. And and I think that's that's one of the main takeaways here um, is uh, what a terrific band it is, and what an interesting moment it is for this music. Um, Truth. And and I you know I think I think that's maybe a, a good place for us to go next, like what this music does um, because it's surprise. I feel like it surprises us at, you know, almost every, almost every corner there's like, Oh, okay. This now, you know, um, which is a really, really cool thing. And I think um, even people who, who love Lee Morgan, like I know we both do. I, I think it's, I think it's a really, it's new information to realize um, just how how free and and funky um, mm-hmm. this band truly was. Uh, True, when it was in full stride. That's right. That's right. Hard swinging as well, and I, and I think you really brought it out when you talk about uh, Mr. Maupin's genius. Um, I don't call him the secret sauce. I mean, the word was out. Um, that bass clarinet on Neophilia. Mm-hmm is not only otherworldly, but has the same spiritual essence as, as John Coltrane. Um, when I hear that song, it, it, it's, it's the same kind of crux, that same kind of um, magic. And, and heretofore, as talented as Lee Morgan's other frontline partners were before then, there was nobody like Benny Maupin in Lee Morgan's band. And I yeah. won't name names, but the fact that, again, five of these tunes on this set 
are Benny Maupin compositions. Mm -hmm. um, something that the general public may not know, but can read in the liner notes um, to the uh, three disc edition uh, in Benny Maupin's interview. He mentions that uh, Lee Morgan had uh, an incident that basically uh, lessened his chops. He was recovering his embouchure around this period. And we would never know. I would never know. I'm not a trumpeter. I can't hear any difference. But a lot of times um, before these dates, Lee would be like, look, man, uh, you got to play the solos for tonight because um, my, my chops are, are shot. I'm recovering, man. You mm. know, I wanted to make it to the job because that's what I do. I want to show up for my dudes. You know, this is the new Lee Morgan, but I'm still having trouble here. Benny, I need you to fly. I'll say this and I'll give it back to you. Blue Note only made five mistakes, in my opinion, historically. One of them was not signing Benny Maupin as mm. a leader. And they can still rectify that. There's still time. But Yeah, right. Th there's an interesting, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pick up, um, I'll pick up the thread there because uh, there was actually a conversation Um Michael Kuskuna in, in the new liner notes. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think, I, I think I should just read this because uh, Kuskuna is, is such a, in addition to, to being such a, a, an important producer uh, and someone with such big ears. Um, he's been a great historian of, of, especially of sort of the, the label histories, you know, like what happens behind the scenes, um, mm -hmm. especially at Blue Note. So um, here's what he writes. Uh, Lee Morgan and producer Francis Wolfe had the unenviable task of choosing only four lengthy pieces for a double album. At one point during the process, Frank called Benny Maupin to tell him that he loved his compositions on this project and that they should talk about him becoming a Blue Note artist. Mm. The double album was released in March 1971. When Benny called to meet with Frank, he learned that Wolfe had been hospitalized and died on March 8th. Less than a year later, on February 19th, 1972, Lee was killed. And so, you know, that is an undercurrent of this whole thing, right? Is mm -hmm. um, what, a, what a miraculous document we have, but it also rings from one angle in a, in a melancholy key because of what might have been. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Maupin's potential Blue Note career is is one of those things obviously it pales in comparison to you know the idea that lee morgan could have lived and had another i don't know 30 40 years of of productive music making um and also this idea that like i, I think you really see this in that i called him morgan film um this engagement and this release um really was a turning point for him as a, as a musician, you know, he had been, as you said, Greg, he, he had been shaky. He was, you know, he was really trying to sort of find his footing again. And throughout these performances, I think you can hear that he's like, um, you know, it's like the, I'm trying to think of the, of the right analogy, but, you know, he, he's like turning into Superman, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. Every yeah. night, every set, you you hear yeah. him. I, I don't think he always starts super strong, but he like he hits it. He 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 reaches that you know that cruising altitude every set. Um, and I, I feel like 
the success of this engagement, the good vibes that you can that you can feel if you if you listen to the the crowd and understand what was happening mm-hmm. on the bandstand, mm-hmm. I think that was wind in his sails. And oh yeah, you know, 1970 is an interesting time um, where um, you can hear in this band the the synthesis of John Coltrane's harmonic language. Um, it's fully metabolized by this point. Um, the, nobody here is playing like a Coltrane clone, uh, but they but they fully they're fully conversant in that language, and they're also like dipping a toe into freeform um, abstraction. Sure. Um, actually, you know, there, there's one tune that I think um, brings a lot of this into focus, and and I want to maybe hear a moment of that and, and see uh, where that takes us. Um, this is a, a piece called Namo, uh, and it appears in a few different versions on the set. Um, so let, let's hear a taste of that, um, and, and we can talk about sort of what it illustrates or illuminates in this music. Namo. Jimmy Merritt wrote that tune. He's the basis of the band, um, represented by two stellar tunes, that one uh, and also Absolutions. But man, uh, Namo never lets up, man. They it's, start on 10 yeah, and, and yeah. stay on 10. And it's, yeah. it's uh, you know what I love about this tune in this moment, right, in 1970, mm-hmm. is that it combines the kind of punchy, hard bop energy that you associate with Lee Morgan on Blue Note. Mm-hmm. It's got that like that drive, but then it's got this you know this different rhythmic complexity. Um, yep. It's got a, a kind of modal sensibility, and the mm-hmm. way that they play it on um, on the on the bandstand during this gig, um, each soloist is given the option to just kind of stretch and take it out and abstract right. time. And I don't think That's anyone. Right. Uh, gets atonal but they do stray from the from the root you know and and really like go wherever inspiration leads and the rest of the band will drop out and Mm -hmm. and then it's like there's that little melodic hook and that's the signal to come back in and hit it you know and it's a this is not a not a a device that jamie merritt invented but it's used to such a brilliant effect here you know because it's a Mm -hmm. way of combining um you know, a kind of avant-garde sensibility within this like super accessible, you know, really for lack of a better descriptor, like blue note sound, you know? Sure. Um, sure. It's, it's a, and it feels very um, indicative of like what it was to be leaning on the forward edge of mainstream post-bop in 1970. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I want to urge our listeners, if they have time, to cross-compare. This was the second time uh, in my research that this tune was recorded. The first version was on Max Roach's album, Drums Unlimited. Yeah. And Jimmy Merritt was a member of that band as well. Um, 
Max Roach's style on that tune was more of a, a stop start kind of soloing through the whole song kind of approach. Whereas Mickey Roker here, he lays into a pocket. If you can really have a pocket in 7-4, Mickey Roker finds out how to do that. And I think that extra security with that rhythm section lock Mm -hmm. helps these soloists to pretty much go wherever they want to go. It's like, man, we we got it for you, man. Get happy. Do your thing. You included an if statement just now. And I think think my response is, it is and he does. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, there's a, you know, and and this is, this is like, you know, Mickey Roker, Philadelphia, um, Mm -hmm. that John Coltrane energy, you know, um, I love what Mickey Roker does all throughout this set, but I feel like Namo is where you really hear, like he's got that Elvin Jones um, polyrhythmic thing. He's negotiating the the seven so um, effortlessly, you know, Mm it's like, there's this churn and there's this irresistible forward motion. Um, and he's also responsive. Like he's really, really listening oh, yeah. to what's happening. Um, just, you know, exemplary. Um, and then, you know, every take of this tune in the set includes some some pretty extraordinary mopping as well. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, um, yeah. to a certain extent, I think Lee Morgan is, um, I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, Greg, like... To me, he he never feels fully comfortable with the idea of abstraction. You know, um, he is he is so firmly rooted in in this kind of blues and bebop um, idiom. It's like it's part of his DNA, and I feel like um, I'm I'm not as convinced by his like excursions as I am by uh, even someone like Freddie Hubbard. I'll disagree with you. Okay, I'll disagree with you, and I understand your logic. And if we're talking about chord scale relationships, you definitely have a have a winning argument. But as I listen to this music and something actually Branford Marsalis said a long time ago, to understand the outest of John Coltrane, you have to understand the blues and the devices used in the blues. Yeah. Um, honks, shouts, things that can't be easily notated. And I think that, again, Freddie Hubbard may have had um, more of those expressions in his style, but Lee Morgan certainly had those. And I think it's kind of out in its own way to play a Clifford Brown phrase mm-hmm. over an F sus chord, a la Harold <laughs> Mayburn's Beehive. That, yeah. that, that's that's out to me. So I, I, I dig what you're saying, but but I have to I have to differ. But yeah, man, I I think that Lee was definitely uh, open to it. I think he wanted to play it with more. Um, uh, he, he wanted to play it as authentically as possible, but mm-hmm. I think he knew the contrast of playing his inside thing over these outside ideas was going to be a different way to approach that. That's a fair point. I think the 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 most important thing is that he always sounds like himself, right? True. Um, That's true. And and it would be a betrayal, and I think you know, fundamentally insulting to the idea of of free improvisation for him to like throw some tricks in or, or do something yeah, I hear you. didn't I hear you. feel, didn't feel like authentic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that point is well taken. You know, what I was, what I was uh, getting at, whatever reservations I have about Lee um, quote unquote out, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it never sounds bad. I'm just, I'm just, you know, 
let's get that out of the way. Like I, I think, yeah. I think he always sounds great, but whatever reservations I have, I have absolutely none when it comes to Benny Maupin in that setting. Um, mm-hmm. Whenever things open up, like he is, um, he's just, <laughs> yeah. he, he will, yeah. he will sail on as far as, as you let him go, you know, and, and sure. farther. I mean, he is, sure. he is as open and as, as free as inside as inside gets and as out as mm-hmm. out it is possible to get, you know? And that's and, why Nate, that's why this works so well. The yeah. contrast that I can say, you know, the previous guy in the band, I think was actually George Coleman. It's only documented on a few cuts, studio mm-hmm. cuts mm-hmm. and it's perfection, both sides, but the true contrast, you really hear that in somebody like miles and shorter or miles and train in this case, Lee Morgan and Maupin. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there is a juxtaposition, right? Because you talking about a, a precursor, um, there's also, you know, uh, it's shortly after this gig. Um, in fact, it was right after this band finished the gig. They got back to New York and, and Maupin, he left to join M1 Dishi. Um mm-hmm. And here's here's the obligatory uh, self promotion. Um, if you are new to Jazz United, and you have not heard Greg and I um, talking about Herbie Hancock's and Wandishi Band, uh, it's one of our favorite episodes. And uh, true. And so we hope that if you're enjoying this conversation, I guarantee you'll enjoy that one. Um, mm-hmm. But back to the point, right? Um, Benny was off with Wandishi, and so this, you know. Um, similar to Wayne Shorter in uh, in Miles Davis's um, Fillmore East recording, you know it's like mm-hmm. the, the last right. the last bit of Wayne yeah. with Miles. This is the last document of of Benny with Lee. Absolutely, along those same lines, uh, Mickey Roker leaves to join. Yeah. I think Dizzy Gillespie mm-hmm. and Freddie Waits is his replacement. Totally right. different style. This is kind of a swan song uh, for this band, making it even more necessary to hear. Can we talk for a moment about Harold Mayburn? Because, you know, I, I it, it's irresistible for me to compare this um, this box, as we've said, to mm-hmm. Miles Davis's plug nickel set, um, mm-hmm. and and because that's sort of far back in the back of my mind, uh, every once in a while I think about the role of the piano because. Mm-hmm. Herbie is such a such an important voice in the Miles Davis quintet. Um, you know, really everyone is, but but I feel like what Herbie articulates at the piano is so different, and it's such a different direction for the piano in a in a post bop quintet setting. And mm-hmm. what you hear Harold Mayburn do throughout this set is fascinating. Um, yeah, because yeah. there's a lot of McCoy Tyner uh, at mm-hmm. his fingertips. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, as there has always been with Harold Mayburn, there's a lot of soul and and deep blues and there's yeah. a lot of bebop, too. That's and, right. And so you have like really just this huge synthesis of modern yeah. piano style. Um, yeah. And the the kind of uh, intellect and flexibility to like pivot the the aircraft mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how, however the however the wind current 
uh, necessitates, you know? Yeah. Um, I think yeah. it's pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. Me too. Me too. I think about how he comes in the continuum of our music. You know, he's a little young, younger rather than, you know, Wynton Kelly, but he's maybe, you know, a year older or so than McCoy Tyner was. You know, this is a guy who knows 1500 tunes in his sleep, but he also knows how to make one chord sound like an orchestra. Yeah. You know, in my opinion, um, probably the most important tune uh, to come from this stand is the beehive. Um, mm -hmm. And although he wrote that in dedication to um, a Chicago nightclub where he first experienced Charlie Parker and the like, the energy of it has as much to do with this band and that, you know, forward thinking, explosive modal energy. Um, one fact pointed out to me by the great trumpeter Nicholas Payton, the beehive is one of the first tunes that signals its change or its cue via this melodic fragment. Spanish key is another song that does mm. that. You know, yeah. we have two or three, you know, modes that we're going to move through, but we don't do it until the person melodically signals that it's time to move on. So right. um, Mayburn is definitely uh, among the most innovative in that particular language, because on record, um, maybe Spanish key is the only thing at this time that we've heard exactly like that. And it's completely contemporaneous, you know, like 1970, here we are. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we can, maybe we can hear what you're talking about. Uh, if, we, if we judiciously drop the needle on, on the right spot in the beehive. <laughs> we should, um, we should. Let's, let's check that out. Mayburn, greats, with the equally great Lee Morgan, Benny Maupin, Jimmy Merritt, and Mickey Roker. Nate, you know, one of the things that I really like about this box to set, and any kind of comprehensive treatment uh, for that matter, is the extras you get. Not even the musical ones, but just the vibe, you know, the shouts mm -hmm. from the crowd, just the random um, <laughs> exuberance of a Saturday night. But man, um, I got a special thrill getting to peek into the swagger of Mr. <laughs> Lee Morgan. Um, yes. There are a few memorable quotes on here that um, I, I don't want to spoil for everybody, but uh, when he sets up the set break and says, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring on our friend. He's great. He's swinging. He's grooving. How about it for Juke Box? And everyone goes <laughs> nuts, you know, and they turn on some Lee Morgan to go to the set break. Yeah. Like that's just a priceless moment that I'm glad the tape was rolling on. Now, for the next few minutes, you'll be entertained by that great performer, a true original with a wide variety of music in his repertoire. Let's get together and bring him on with a big round of applause. I refer to the one and only Juke Box. Get him, Juke. Smoke, baby. He came out of that old school vibe, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like he was mm -hmm. a he was a like a real nightclub jazz cat like a, like someone mm -hmm. who really like was at home in that setting i think you can feel throughout the set that this is a this is an audience that is there for whatever he's bringing um yeah you know um the lighthouse 
was a, a, a great club. I wish I could have, I wish I could have seen it, um, you know, in its heyday. Uh, yeah. But, you know, Hermosa Beach, very relaxed vibe, very hip clientele. And um, I think he felt right at home. There's actually a beautiful section of the film, I called him mm-hmm. Morgan, where um, you really get this almost sensory feeling um, because you've just come through the darkness with Lee Morgan. You've just kind of right. experienced um, how difficult that time was for him. Some really poignant reflections. You know, w- Wayne Shorter shows up and and you, really sort of you can see that Wayne is still sort of agonizing over how mm. much Lee suffered during this time. And then we find mm. ourselves out on Hermosa beach, you know, and it's just like sunlight and air Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the waves and Lee is looking comfortable and, um, happy, you know, and, and it's just like, you get the real sense that this was a a release for him in, in both, um, personal and musical terms. And so then, so, you know, that's, that's why he sounds so, uh, he's so relaxed on the bandstand, you know, he's, he's so comfortable yeah. with the crowd and he's making those jokes. And yeah, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. I think an essential part of the context around this music is, is hearing those introductions and, and all of that. I, I think the real wisdom here is number one, figuring out how to keep a working band. When you have that working band, having enough time to, stretch out to find the individual voices in a collective. Mm. And then after that, when you identify the strengths, um, putting those forward in a selfless way to make the whole thing run to its maximum uh, efficiency. Um, You know, just like, you know, basketball or football or what have you, you know, you find who, you know, the, the, the star athlete is and you build a situation around them or if everyone is, is of equal talent, um, there has to be some kind of lesson of, of selflessness so that the main uh, ideal or narrative is told. And, and I think this band tells a story. They have a language. They have chemistry. Um, they found ways to, to stand out, uh, even at that time, in a situation that could have been uh, maybe oversaturated. They rise to the top because, again, they're looking for the secret sauce. They're looking for the wisdom, the nugget. Uh, that's what the lesson is, I think, for, for this band. The, the, the selfishness, selflessness, excuse me, and the musical wisdom of everybody mm-hmm. involved. Yeah, I think that's extraordinarily well put. Um, and I think, um, I, I, yeah, I think it, it, it gives us something to carry forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also worth noting that um, we see certain legacies from this moment in time kind of um, mm-hmm. carried forward uh, almost in secret. You know, I feel like uh, mm-hmm. you have to think that when Benny Maupin moves on to Mwandishi, he's bringing some of this with him. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to think oh, yeah. that. That when oh, yeah. Roker goes on to play with Dizzy, he's bringing some of this with him, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, Harold Mayburn, who we just lost in 2019, um, 
you know, the Beehive continued mm-hmm. to be a, a tune that he played for years and years. Um, he brought his wisdom right. to so many, so many musical situations, um, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and yet, and I'm humbled to say that as much Harold Mayburn as I've enjoyed in my life, um, I heard him in a new light uh, spending time with this set. You know, I, I, I heard another side of him yeah. that that was there. But yeah. it was it was better revealed to me here, and that's you know mm-hmm. that's the the most you can ever ask out of something like this is that you know it takes something that you already know and love, Lee Morgan's music, mm-hmm. Harold Mayburn's playing, Benny Maupin's badassery, and yeah. and and just opens yeah. it up to you in a new way. Yeah, I mean, um, I'll get myself into trouble here, um, and you can write your letters to me. But uh, this is the best reissue. Um, And really, it isn't fully a reissue. The best uncovering of a historical document musically of 2021. Greg Bryant said it. There you go. Yeah, I I don't think you're going to have too much argument there. As we said, quality and quantity. uh, It's it's all there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I highly recommend the splurge on the physical object here because uh, there are some fantastic photographs and there are truly illuminating uh, contributions to the liner notes um, from a, a number of people, including the aforementioned Nicholas Payton uh, and Jack D. Jeanette, uh, who plays on one track. Um, trumpeter Eddie Henderson contributes some thoughts. Yeah. Um, Charles Tolliver, friend of the show. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, you really have um, a sort of kaleidoscopic uh, presentation uh, in the package of this thing. Um, and I cannot wait to get my, uh, to get, get those platters on my turntable <laughs> because that is, yeah. uh, that is going to be a, a world of, of, you know, immersive enjoyment. Uh, so for the jazz lover in your life, uh, you know, Christmas may have come a little bit early this year. Start saving now folks. This is the time in jazz United when we make pocket-sized recommendations. Uh, I, I think you could probably safely say that this entire podcast has been one big old uh, wet kiss to, uh, to this Lee Morgan box. So you know that we recommend that. Uh, but every episode, we have a segment we call This I Dig. Uh, shout out to another Blue Note artist, Hank Mobley. That's right. Um, and it's exactly that. It's, it's just something we've been digging. Uh, so Greg, I'll, I'll toss it to you first. Sure. Um, I'll take it back a couple of months. Um, I really had a chance to spend some time with, uh, Jessup wagon, the latest from James Mm. Brandon Lewis. Yeah. And I want to shout him out. I got a chance to speak with him actually for, uh, the, let me tell you about it segment on Tuesday nights that also runs, uh, on WBGO.org. Um, shout out to our editorial director for helping me to have that to happen. But uh, yeah, man, James Brandon Lewis, um, he's something else. If you have not heard this young uh, dynamo uh, of the tenor saxophone, please check him out. And I believe Jessup Wagon uh, is a great place to start. It's a a real landmark recording, I think, Um, not only for him, but but for the rest of us. You know, it's it is one of the standout releases of 2021 for sure. Um, and I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you brought that to the table. Um, 
Mine is a little bit uh, more along the lines of, uh, of of pure entertainment, bordering on fluff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's fluff with with some substance. And what I'm talking about is the uh, the Apple TV series Ted Lasso, uh, which is a sitcom starring and uh, partially created by Jason Sudeikis. Um, it's a show about a uh, an American. Um, uh, football coach who goes on to, uh, you know, through a series of sitcomish uh, twists and, and credulity stretching premises, uh, he goes on to, to coach a, a UK football club. Um, and so it's a fish out of water story, but it's also very much um, a, a tale of, uh, you know, broken people finding uh, some happiness in, in their relationships and in each other and in a, a shared purpose. Uh, it's a very sweet and and really beautifully made show and it's often wickedly funny uh season two is underway at apple tv um and uh every episode so far has been uh, a pretty unmitigated delight so uh highly recommend it as always we thank you for listening to jazz united a product of wbgo studios i'm greg bryant and for nate chanin our editorial director Uh, We thank you and we urge you, if you have not subscribed to us, you can do that anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also listen at WBGO.org. Our producer and preventer of technical difficulty is Mr. Trevor Smith. We thank him. If you have not yet become a WBGO member, consider becoming one. You can do so very easily by going to WBGO.org slash support and leaving your tax-deductible contribution to ensure programs like this and much, much more courtesy of WBGO. We'll see you again next time.